Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. Everything is a learning curve, you know, from from when you leave university, that's not the end of when you keep learning. You learn as you go along, you know, each job you go to, you're, you're never going to be an expert exactly in that job. And my opinion is that if you are an expert in that job, you know, it's time for you to leave. It's time for you to learn something new. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we are joined by Francis Hughes from Dublin, who is an emergency response manager with the Norwegian Refugee Council surge team. Francis started his career as a nurse in Dublin before moving to London, where he studied tropical nursing. He then did a master's in international humanitarian action as part of the NOHA network and has worked in countries such as South Sudan, Iraq, DRC, Indonesia, Yemen, Sudan, and Iran. Francis's job is to deliver first-line life-saving assistance to newly displaced populations in crisis, including food security, non-food distribution items, shelter, water, and sanitation, and setting up camp management and protection, including child protection and emergency cash assistance. Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Kyle, for having me. No, it's our pleasure. I'm, I really appreciate the time that you're taking to, to share some of your personal insights and journeys towards an international career. And as always, the first question that we ask is, how did you get started in the work that you're doing now? So it's a, it's an interesting question because I have always had a desire to sort of travel the world. I've always wanted to see new countries, uh, experience new cultures. You know, my family from when I was young, I, my father had 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 traveled the world, and he used to retell these stories to me. And my my uncles were the same. So I knew I wanted to experience different cultures, but I didn't really know um, that I could make a career out of it. Uh, we were a family of people who worked in trades. So my father was a was a carpenter. My my uncles and stuff worked um, as paramedics, and I knew I wanted to work with my hands. Plus, uh, studying things like um, uh, studying a bachelor of arts was sort of off the question. I was always told that I'd never get a job in it. So I spoke to my guidance counselor one day, and as one of your previous people on the on the podcast had mentioned like there's no real guidance for people who want to work in the international development or or humanitarian sector like there's no guidance for it nobody nobody really tells you anything about it so we discussed what i was good at and what i wanted to do and he sort of put me in the direction of being a nurse so i thought about it I decided that's what I wanted to do. And halfway through my bachelor degree, I realized I, I, I really didn't like nursing too much. But a friend of mine was, he had gone on one of these uh, volunteerism 
things. So when I finished college, I had the uh, option to do one of these volunteerism things with uh, Global Brigades International or to go uh, skiing in the south of France. So it took, a, it took a couple of days to sort of decide, okay, I want to go and visit Ghana. I want to see, you know, these cultures and I'm just finished university now. I want to get out into the world and I want to check out these things. So as soon as I did that, I realized this is for me. I, this is what I want to do, but I had absolutely no idea how to get into it. So a quick internet search and I found a course in London, in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine called Tropical Nursing. So I went and I, I did that course and I was talking to my lecturers and they had mentioned that I could do a, a master's in international uh, humanitarian action. Now, I sort of scoffed at the idea because I wasn't very academic at the time. Um, and after speaking, after speaking with, with them a little bit, I said, look, I'll, I'll throw in an application and see. So I applied for that and I got, uh, I got accepted. So I ended up doing, I did a year with uh, the NOHA course on the international humanitarian action and from there it's just sort of kicked off now one thing that i would say to 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 listeners is never give up i mean i i think i applied to over 150 jobs when i was newly out of college and you know one job accepted me that was a protection officer in south sudan now i had never heard of south sudan i was not somebody who really took interest in international relations or anything but i knew i wanted to get out there i knew i wanted to to go and and and, and see the world so i said okay this is a great place to start the interesting thing in the interview is i remember when they told me the salary uh i was shocked because i thought people did this out of pure voluntary work i didn't realize that we got paid for it so they during the interview they said they told me the salary and i, I was like is that Per month or per year? And they started laughing. They said, it's per month. Is that okay? I was like, I get paid for this? Um, so that sort of just kicked off my my career. So I worked in South Sudan with non-violent, non-violent peace force for a year. They did a lot of protective accompaniment with people who were on the front lines of conflict. So in South Sudan, especially, you had the Nuer and the Dinka who were just going through a civil war. And um, basically, my job was to was to ensure that the that the civilians weren't being attacked at the time, and I think that that really sort of shaped my career then, because uh, because we were working so closely with the communities, I sort of developed this sense that we as humanitarians should be working very closely with communities. We should be, you know eating lunch in the in the villages we should be you know on a daily basis meeting up with them i think later on i realized that that's not what a lot of humanitarians do you know they're they're in offices offices and stuff but becoming a an emergency response manager i think it really it was really something that i was interested in because as a nurse, you know, you go from different wards, you look at different specialities, you go from respiratory to uh, cardiology, you go to, 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 to renal systems. So you're, you, you get a flavor of everything. And I think as an emergency response manager, I, I still get that flavor of everything. And I have all this energy to put into it. Like my daily, my day to day job could be, you know, going out to a camp and doing a distribution. And at the same time, Building, building latrines while meeting with the local communities and discussing access to the area, meeting with armed groups, etc. So that's sort of how I got into it and where I am now. No, that's great. Let's go back sort of just to the, the very beginning. And 
because you had mentioned you had done some type of uh, volunteer work, right? Uh, so sort of a cultural experience tour or something like that, or was, um, what was it that you specifically did that gave you this type of international introduction? And I asked that question because what we sort of discovered through this interview series so far is that everybody sort of has this one first experience of where they go out, go overseas. And, and, and in many cases it's, it's, it's through something like that, sort of a university program where they get some, you know, cultural immersion or they go to another country or they take on a certain project with a nonprofit or an NGO or do some volunteer work or whatever the case is. But there's a really something that sort of begins to shape people's understanding about the international community and international career portion of it through a, a beginning experience. So when you first went on this this uh, program, and I think it was something overseas and in and sort of a, a cultural immersion program that you went on, how was that for you? I mean, had, did that really change your perspective at all? Is that what set the foundation for you moving forward, or what was your experience with that once you finished it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so we had a uh, we had an organization as part of our clubs and societies who came to the university, and um, they were called Global Brigades International, and they did different projects in different communities um and ours was based in ghana so like they had a, a wash project which is water and sanitation where you would go out and you'd build a well or you'd build latrines they had a shelter project where you would build uh, you would help the community build shelters now when i had finished university the only project coming up was a was a microfinance project now i mean i had i had absolutely no idea about microfinance, but that didn't seem to that didn't seem to dissuade them at all. They said they would give me some training before I went and some training on the mission. So I sort of just decided, okay, let's 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 go and check this out. Um, when I got out there, it was my first sort of introduction to the humanitarian world or the development world, and it was for me it was fantastic. It was two weeks of working with local communities. You know, we would go, we would do the assessment, we would talk to them about how their banking systems worked, how the local community funds would work. And then we, we worked with them to, um, to develop something that suited them. So it was really a, it was really a, a community-led initiative. Now, for us, it only lasted two weeks, but we went through the whole process of doing an assessment talking to the community, living and sleeping with the community, getting a great insight into how they work and how they, they develop their own systems. And then we would help them to, to, to maybe look at, look at things from a different perspective. Once that was finished, there would be another group coming in, another set of volunteers coming in, and we would, we would then share with them our experience. We would explain to them what we did and what, at what stage we were. So for me, once, I mean, once I got out there, I just completely fell in love. And uh, I mean, at the same time, as I said, like I didn't realize you could you could make a career out of it for um, in Ireland, at least, you know, when 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 we when people hear you're going out to Africa to work with local communities, they either think it's missionary work or you're going out as a volunteer. So that was sort of ingrained in my mind. I didn't realize that there was um there was a way that you could make a career out of it or you know i didn't i didn't have much understanding of international relations at the time so you know i it was just about coming home opening up my laptop doing a quick google search to see i knew my skills as a nurse were valuable but i wasn't sure how valuable they were 
And it was a friend of mine who, who told me about uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. And I started searching them. I went to their office. They didn't really want me there at the time, but I was asking questions. I was being extremely proactive about what I needed to do to be a nurse, to go into the, the developing world or to go to another country and, and work there and, and use my skills. So they put me in contact with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So that sort of kick-started my career. It was more that I was being proactive in searching for something that I had no idea what I was searching for. Oh, well, that's really interesting. And so when you mentioned that you were being proactive and you showed up at their office and they, they didn't want you there, <laughs> that's quite funny. Um, but what, what were you doing in terms of being proactive? What was your approach? My approach was basically to figure out what was going on and how this, this sector worked. I knew there were people going abroad to do this type of work. I knew there was people who had joined the, U the UN. I just didn't know where to begin. So when, when my friend put me in contact with MSF, it was more, okay, I don't know where, where to start with this. I'm going to go and hound their office until they basically tell me how I can join them. What are their criteria? What do I need? And they, again, like as, as soon as I arrived, I knocked on the door, they invited me in, I explained to them why I was there, and they really didn't want me there. So they were kind of like, oh, no, no, you need to have an appointment. And I said, well, listen, I want, I'm not leaving until I speak to somebody. And it was only a 10-minute conversation. But they sort of gave me the understanding that there was certain criteria that I needed or certain, you know, coming straight out of college wasn't enough, that I needed to do a master's or I needed to do another course or I needed to gain more experience. I think it's the the, the tale that's as old as time, you know. You, you need 10 years um, experience, but nobody's willing to give you that 10 years experience before you can start an organization. So with an organization. So it was just sort of Google searching what I could do, where I could go, finding out about um, conflicts in, 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 in the Middle East and Africa and, and, and in Europe. So when you were doing that and you were talking to them and you were doing this sort of research, I think one of the, the most common complaints that we hear from most graduates and young professionals is that, you know, simply finding the jobs and sort of unlocking the system and understanding the system is the most significant challenge. You can always get on LinkedIn and other things and find positions, but you don't really understand how the system works. Um, so now that you've sort of been inside the system for a number of years now, when you were looking back on that, like what was your main challenge in terms of that? Was it just really sort of just going to the organization and then hearing what they had to say and, or was it just getting on Google and finding, you know, as much information as you can, where was your most significant challenge in terms of trying to locate positions and determine the career opportunities? I think the most uh, challenging aspect of it for me was trying to identify organizations. I mean, now we have relief web where you can go on and there's, there's hundreds of jobs from around the world that match your skills and as well as that, having the experience. So I knew my, my, the skill set that I have, that I had as a nurse were valuable, but I didn't know exactly where they could be used or who to speak to about, uh, utilizing those skills. My, my only sort of source of reference was MSF. And as we know, MSF is a bit of, um, I don't want to use the word, word cult, but they're a machine among, uh, onto themselves. Like they, uh, when you work with MSF in the field, it's very, it's very rare that you properly coordinate with them. So 
they weren't giving me the information I needed to join other organizations or to apply to other organizations. So it was for me in the beginning was searching which organizations do what. First of all, which organization, which organizations are out there? And then of those organizations that are out there, what do they do? And do they match my medical experience? And so now that we, you've, you've got your initial position, you said you had applied for about 150 jobs and you got your first position. Like, what was your sort of thought process then when you find out that you're going to be going to Africa and, and these other countries? So I think in the beginning, when I, when I first got this position, um, I had applied to about 150 different jobs, and most of them were nursing, medical, uh, medical officers, medical coordinators, nursing positions. And this one position, the, I, I remember waking up one morning and, and getting an email from Nonviolent Peace Force, and I was thinking, I don't even remember applying to these guys. But I looked through the, I looked through the email, and what I realized was that they, they didn't do medicine they were they were predominantly a protection organization i think at the time i was i felt so desperate to to get a job i was like okay i'll, I'll take it and see what happens you know I'll, I'll i'll go out and see what happens it was a mixture of relief and excitement at the time i mean it was like you know i'd spent i think about a month looking for positions a month or two months looking for positions i was writing cvs i, I from dawn to dusk I was going through organization pages to see what was coming up. I was trying to match my skills with them. I was very focused on what the requirements were. Um, I don't think the requirements are such a big deal. I think if you have a um, a good enough CV and you know you have the six requirements and you you know you fill five of those requirements, I mean, just go for it. I, I ended up just starting to go for these things. And while I didn't have any protection background, um, what I did find out was that the organization were looking for people with medical experience, but it wasn't a requirement at the time. And I did get to use some of those skills while I was working with Nonviolent Peace Force. But at the time, it was it was more like, OK, finally, somebody's giving me an opportunity. Um, even if I don't get the position, at least I'll get experience with the interviews. At least I'll get experience, you know, talking to them and, you know, Usually they ask at the end, you know, what what type of like what questions you might have. I use that time to sort of figure out what is going on in the country, where you know who is working there, what can what can be what can be done, and you ask it in the sort of sense that you ask it in the sort of way that uh, you know they ask you, do you have any questions? And I would say yes. Um, what organizations are you partnering with? And they would give me a, a name of organizations. And I would say, oh, you know, I have a medical background. Are you partnering with any medical organizations? Are you are you working with any medical organizations that maybe my skills would be adapted to? And I asked those questions and they gave me some 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 very interesting answers. And from that, I started applying to those organizations, not thinking that I was going to get the job. Now, in the end, I did get the job and I was delighted. And uh, I sort of just went out then. Oh, that's really interesting. And so you, you're basically using that uh, interview opportunity to find out uh, essentially who their partners are, who their, I guess, if you're looking at it from a private sector perspective, you might say, who are your competitors, <laughs> right? Um, and so that's that's quite interesting. And so you're able to to use that information to hopefully get other organizations to your list that you could apply for. Yeah, I mean... From my side, I think uh, you know everything is an opportunity. You gotta you gotta use what you have. Um, I went from literally not knowing any organization to then having a list of organizations and understanding exactly what they were doing, where they were doing. 
And I think, you know, networking is extremely important. And I try now to update my, my LinkedIn as much as possible. I try to, you know, reach out to as many people um, as possible on, on LinkedIn. And while I'm not uh, a LinkedIn superstar, you know, I, I, I'm constantly in contact with people. And, you know, young graduates are, are, are always getting in contact with me. And I'm more than happy to give them advice and help them and, and, and support them with that because I know how difficult it can be. So, yeah, networking is, is one of the most uh, essential aspects of my position because, you know, there's just constantly jobs being um, advertised. You know, there's people who are putting articles out there um, I read, like I gobble up books. So I, I'm constantly reading the articles. I'm constantly reading what's going on. I'm getting a sense for the international scene and, and what's going on. And that really helps when you're applying to jobs that you have a basic understanding of what's going on in the country. Um, now, once you get into, once you get to live in the country, it's a, it's a completely different uh, story. I mean, once you start talking to national staff, once you start talking to people, you understand that probably... 50% of what you read is uh, is applicable, while the other 50% is, you know, the, the author's view or the author's opinion on that. Um, so you start to develop your own opinion. You start to develop your own sense of what's going on. And networking through that is is probably one of the most important things. That's very true. I think that, you know, having spent a number of years in different countries over the last, well, been working internationally for 20 years now, but I mean, it's having spent, you know, for example, going on three years in Ukraine, for example. And it's like, you hear so much about what's happening these days. And so much of it is just really subjective. It's not really founded in a lot of sort of understanding and facts and everybody's sort of an expert. And, and so it's, it's really interesting to sort of take everything with a grain of salt as you read these things. And, and that country experience of being inside the country itself, I think is what actually really shapes your knowledge and your ability to understand the context of the country you're working in as well as the region overall. Yeah, that's definitely 100% true. I mean, I remember from when I when I was beginning my career as a, as a student nurse, people would always wonder why I was getting more food on my place as when we go down to the canteen. And the one thing that I said to them was, you have to be nice to the dinner ladies. You know, you have to tell them that their cooking is very much like your mother's. And they laughed at it. But, you know, building those connections with national staff allows you to better understand the situation in the country. I mean, we as internationals are flying through, whether we spend six months, one year, you know, four years in the country. The most information that I have ever gotten has been through talking with national staff, you know, hanging out with national staff, working with national staff. A lot of these national staff are um, just as qualified, even more qualified than I am. Um, but because of their passports or because of where they're living, it's it's very difficult for them to advance any further. So I, we as internationals are extremely lucky and, you know, we need to utilize the, the knowledge that that national staff have. Like from from my experience working working in Iraq, uh, I was I was living on a compound with with uh, 16 other people and I was sharing a, a bedroom for six months with 14 other guys who were my distribution team. And we used to we used to stay up until two o'clock in the morning, just talking and discussing about the conflict in in Iraq at the time. We would discuss, you know, what it was like living there, what they were feeling, how their families were, and you you create this sort of bond um, where they. What I like to do is is to say when I when I join a mission is okay, you know, we are not a team, we are like a family here, and 
with a lot of national staff, that means a lot to them. And because we are acknowledging that they are important, we are acknowledging that, you know, their opinion counts. And a lot of the time, when I'm in very uh, precarious situations, you know, where there's uh, shooting or, or bombs going off, it's the national staff who are protecting me. And I'm going into these situations very much like a, like a, like a deer in the headlamps. Like I have no idea what I'm going into a lot of the time. They have experience working in these, in, in these situations. They're the ones who are advising me, you know, Every time, every time we go to do a distribution, we sit in the car and for the half an hour to four hour journey, I'm sitting there talking to them about the community we're going to, what we're doing there. You know, I'm getting advice on how to deal with, with, with the armed groups. I'm getting advice on how to deal with, uh, with the local community. What do they like? What do they not like? What can I say? What can I not say? And we create this sort of, um, this bond between us between myself and and some of my national stuff that's basically it for me do you think that there's sort of an emphasis on the fact that we you know in most international organizations that we we basically say okay there's international staff and then there's national staff do you find that all organizations are sort of dividing their employee set that way no I, and what do you think about that i i don't think all organizations are doing it i think there are some organizations that put an emphasis on international staff and national staff i mean when i joined Nonviolent peace force for example it was my first position and we worked hand in hand with the national staff so i was an international protection officer and my partner was a, was a was a national protection officer so we worked hand in hand and that sort of developed my view on how we should work but once you go into the bigger organizations i think at that point you see a lot of personalities coming out from different internationals and different national staff um like some internationals will will work hand in hand you know they'll go out for dinners and stuff they'll they'll meet national staff for drinks i think overall it's kind of what i found is it's somewhat frowned upon to do that Whereas for me, I was going out for drinks every weekend with my national staff. You know, we were becoming closer and closer. I think it's a sort of a, a double-edged sword in the sense that you're managing these people, but at the same time, you're almost, you're becoming over-friendly with them. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the line that you constantly have to walk. I have managed to develop it in a way that, you know, I'm, I'm friends with these people, but at the same time, I manage them. And there is a, a distinction between that. And I am sort of per, a, a person who, if, if I ask somebody to do a job and they don't know how to do it, I don't like them to turn around and say, okay, it'll be done. And then, you know, six hours later or a day later, the job isn't done. I expect honesty from my staff and I expect that if they don't know how to do a job, that's no problem. We'll do it together so that next time I ask you, it will be done. So we develop that sort of um, that, that closeness. I mean, with a lot of uh, cultures in different countries, there is this sort of emphasis on not being able to say no to a manager. So, you know, when you walk into a when you walk into a, an office with that in the back, back of your mind, it's about putting in the effort in the beginning to show them that they are supported, that they are able 
to come to me with an issue and that we can deal, deal with it together. And in return, I kind of expect the same thing. You know, if I don't know what's going on in a certain area, that they will come to me and explain to me what's going on. You know, if there's a if there's an armed group that are kicking off because I'm asking too many questions, that they will either, you know, tell me to quieten down a bit or to, you know, move the conversation in a different direction. So I, I like to work in a partnership with my national self. But I think... Oh, I, what, I, what I've seen from the international community is that it's it's not always like that. Um, there's not always the same respect put on somebody because they are not an international. There's this view that we are the experts, we're coming in and we're telling, we, ha- we are using national staff as a resource instead of saying, okay, we are a team or we are working with in this context together, we may as well make the most of it. So yeah, that's that's sort of what I what I find with some of the organizations and working with national staff. You spent a, a number of years and in, in, in some time in Africa and with this organization. And so what was your next transition point then? Uh, and, and what sort of uh, was driving you to transition to a different international organization? So at the time I was working with Nonviolent Peace Force, um, it was very heavy in terms of waking up at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, working long hours, um, being out in the field, working in IDP camps. It was very heavy. And by the end of it, I was I was fairly exhausted. Um, so I decided, OK, I think and I had a med- I had a medical issue where I ended up getting kidney stones in South Sudan. So I, I realized, OK, I need to I need to get out of here for a little bit. It was six months between working in uh, with Nonviolent Peace Force and then working with Terre des Hommes. Um, so I had I had not intentionally taken a break, but I thought, okay, this one year's experience will allow me to, you know, look for other organizations, look for for work in in, in other countries. I wanted to get out. I wanted to experience that. And it felt like I was restarting my career all over again. So I had done this one year's experience. And then again, I was putting my CV into into a hundred different organizations, and I wasn't getting any information. But I wasn't getting any interviews. I wasn't getting any anyone noticing my CV. Um, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, once you look at the requirements from an organization, you put your CV in. Um, if you fill four or five of the six requirements, just throw your CV in, see what happens. So I, I put my my CV into a into Terrezon. They were working in Iraq, and one of the requirements was that I spoke French. Now, I don't speak French. I, I learned it in school, but uh, it's very very basic. On my CV, I said I had basic French. So I got the job interview. I spoke a little bit about my experience in in South Sudan, and I ended up getting the job. Now, <laughs> the funny part is that my country director at the time, when I arrived. Um, it was a small startup mission in Iraq, Terry's own work in 33 countries or 36 countries in the world. It was a small startup mission in Iraq, and there was only about four or five people working there. So my country director came to me when I arrived, and he started speaking to me in French. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Mark, uh, I, I don't speak French. And he goes, uh, mais, but you do. And I was like, uh, mais, but I don't, sorry. And uh, he went, he walked away from me, came back with his laptop, opened it up and was like, "Uh, your CV says you speak French. This is why I hired you. But Mark and I working together, 
in the beginning, like he didn't, he didn't really want me there because I didn't speak French. But after three months, because he saw how uh, I was working with national staff, how I was working with international staff, what my values were, etc., he was he wanted to keep me on, and he wanted to sort of promote me into different positions where I could st- continue starting up these uh, these projects and continue starting up the hiring process and working with people and and setting up bases, and that's sort of how I gradually moved from protection into first of all uh camp management and then into into emergency response because mark trusted me that even though i didn't speak french i was uh very much involved with everybody i was working with so we had set up i think three different bases and uh, i was the one who was going out and 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 helping the staff to develop their capacities and helping with the recruitment and helping with the logistics and everything even though i didn't have very much experience in that i sort of picked it up as i went along and that's another thing that's very important is that when even if you don't fully have the experience it, everything is a learning curve you know from from when you leave university that's not the end of when you keep learning. You learn as you go along. You know, each job you go to, you're, it, you're never going to be an expert exactly in that job. And my opinion is that if you are an expert in that job, you know, it's time for you to leave. It's time for you to learn something new. I think you're highlighting one of the key issues of sort of the dynamic between, let's say, smaller organizations. Like you mentioned, you had four people starting up a project versus these very sort of huge organizations. And because... Smaller organizations can make uh, more timely decisions and more flexible decisions about who they hire, where larger, more bureaucratic organizations, and plus with the number of applications they get, they can really be picky and specific and, you know, you know, screen out all these different 1,000 candidates because they get, you know, 1,500 applications for every vacancy announcement. But smaller organizations, at least in my experience, um, will have the sort of flexibility to hire people that they need to fit the mission and to be able to, you know, use different and diverse sort of uh, personnel to, to fill their ranks and because they need sort of a general skill set plus, plus some specialties and, and things like that. So I, I think that's something that you're highlighting in terms of the flexibility that goes along with having smaller organizations or smaller team engagements, as opposed to, you know, larger, more robust organizations. Yeah, 100%. I mean, from when I was in university, we could see the people who wanted to join um, the UN system. We could see the people who wanted to go to organizations like NRC, DRC, all these big Save the Children, all these big monster organizations who their goal was to work with those organizations. So that sort of developed. When I when I started, I was applying to these big organizations because everybody else was. Um, so I was applying to NRC. I was applying to the UN. I was I was filling out applications over and over. I think I, I think I managed to get one application every hour because I was you know adapting my my cover letter. I was adapting my CV to meet the criteria. But I think the 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 most important or the 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 best thing that happened to me was that I was able to cut my teeth on uh, the smaller organizations because I got more hands-on skills in areas where I probably would never have gotten hands-on skills with these big organizations. So when I was working with Terre des Hommes in Iraq, for example, I was working um, on projects in child protection. I was working on projects in, in CCCM. But as well as that, I was learning a lot about logistics because I had to do all my own logistics work. I was learning a lot about finance because I had to do my own finance work. As soon as I joined... Um, a bigger NGO, it felt like I was 
put in a box where this is your this is your job. Don't deviate from that. You know, I I would come to them with ideas and uh, requests, and I say, okay, we can do this, we can do that, and I'd be told, no, 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 this is this is the project. This is what you need to do. So you definitely develop more in the smaller organizations than the bigger ones. And as well as that, I mean, people, I've worked with people who have only worked in bigger organizations. And when it comes to things like, you know, the two of us could be working on a, on a project together, um, they would have issues with, with logistics, whereas I wouldn't, because I would be going to the logistics department and I would be sort of saying, okay, what are you doing to help push this forward and they'll be saying oh we're following this this and this and i would turn around and say well no you don't have to do that it's not a requirement because the donors or whatever the donors are saying you know we're flexible to a certain extent so i would be sitting down with them and discussing where we could sort of push things forward whereas in other projects they might be held up for three to six months because the logistics are following the criteria um so you know, I gained a lot of experience and I gained a lot of um, valuable, valuable experience from working in these smaller organizations. I mean, if I was continue, if I had started in NRC as I'm working now, I would have never, you know, gotten any experience working with donors. Whereas with Terre des Hommes, I was, I was pretty much the donor li- liaison because I was on the front lines. I was working um, where the displacement was happening. And as well as that, I mean, when it comes to things like security and access, a lot of bigger organizations are very hands-off when it comes to security and access because they don't want a lawsuit on their hands or they don't perceive the risk as enough to go to areas where there's 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 risk or danger with a smaller organization we're constantly trying to fight for funding so we're sending people out like for me i was working on the front lines of mosul i was working in shirgat when 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 isis uh, families were coming across the river i remember going out one time to do an assessment and i was speaking to the mayor about when he thought the displacement was going to happen so shirgat was a was a small village in central in the north central iraq where the tigris river ran through and on one side you had isis and on the other side you had what they called the liberated areas or the newly taken areas so we went out and we spoke to the mayor and uh, we basically asked him like where he thought the displacement was going to come from and what he thought it was going to look like. And he was like, oh, there's displacement happening now. And we were like, really, where? So we went down to the river and we saw families coming across the river. Because our organization was flexible, I could send our staff down to get fuel for the boats. We could get water. We could get food within a matter of minutes. With a bigger organization, you don't have that flexibility. And with bigger organizations, they probably wouldn't be there in the first place. So we set up I mean, we were standing there giving out food, pulling people out of boats as ISIS were shooting across the river at us. Um, now, we, we, were very, fairly, we were very well protected behind walls and stuff, and uh, the military were there helping us. And we also had the flexibility that once they came across the river, it was like, what are we going to do with them? You know, they had come across the river. They were then being herded into, into these big houses into the, the they were being separated men and women the men were being taken off and being questioned to see whether they were isis members while the women were just left there so part of the response then was okay what do we do with the men, what do we do with the women and children so we set up a, a reception center for them i sent out the teams to get the equipment i wrote the i wrote the the necessary sops and stuff and i, I called my my country director 
then when my country director heard, he went absolutely bonkers. He was like, no, we can't do this. We don't have the funding for it. I said, well, this is what they need. So, I mean, either that or they sleep in the cold. So he got onto the donors, explained what was happening. The donor said, no, you can't do that. We're not doing that. So I got onto the donors. Then I said, come down to Shirgat and see what's going on. So within a week, they came down. They saw what we were doing. We had set up a, a guest house um, with beds, blankets, mattresses. We had set up a kitchen. We were giving them food. And within sort of two to three days, we were giving them psychosocial support. Within two or three days, they were they were then released into the community. But at that point, because we were doing CCCM and we were trying to monitor how many people were, were being displaced, we were able to get that valuable data for the cluster systems and stuff. So when when our donor saw this, they said, okay, this is brilliant. We need, we need to do this and we need to also replicate it in areas like Mosul. If I was working with a bigger organization, I probably would never have been allowed even get to that point. So we replicated exactly what was going on in Shirgat when we went to Mosul and we were giving that valuable uh, information and data to the cluster systems, to the camps, we were able to call the camps. So when people were crossing uh, front lines, we were setting them up in mustering sites. We were giving them food, water, and we would call the camp and say, okay, we have, you know, 5,000 people. Um, we can send you the list of names, but they're going to be in the camps by five o'clock today. The camps were then able to start preparing tents and stuff for those Whereas before, if we hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And it probably would have been an even bigger mess than it was in the end. Yeah, I think that's a really great sort of example of how flexibility with smaller organizations can have a substantial impact. And I think, you know, the the point that you mentioned about the smaller organizations and sort of cutting your teeth is, is really an important point to take away, which is there is no defined international career path. And there's so many different ways to approach this. And so there's almost if I were to overgeneralize sort of the situation is that you can go with a smaller organization and you can probably accept a little bit less pay. And if you're willing to work in more, let's just say austere environments, you can really accelerate your professional development, your career experience. Like you said, you start working on all this variety of topics and you can do that very rapidly and start building out this massive portfolio of experience as opposed to somebody who went, say, straight to New York with the United Nations and there are sort of working on one specific portfolio and nothing outside that portfolio and, and sort of always feeling like they have to ask for permission to gain experience and all this kind of stuff like that. And so there's definitely multiple ways to pursue an international career and going with a smaller organization, especially initially in your career, can help tremendously, not only because it gives a, a wider variety of options, but because also it gives you diversity of experience and to be able to gain experience rapidly, uh, as opposed to somebody that's just going to a more bureaucratic position in and of itself. And so, I, you know, the question I always ask, Francis, as we're getting towards the end here is, uh, what would you do differently now? So now that you're looking back upon your career and the experiences you've had so far, what would you do differently or what are you doing differently now, I could say? Uh, since you're sort of mid-career and moving forward with the rest of your international career itself? So the, the first thing that I would say is definitely learn languages, like learn the UN languages. It gives you far more opp opportunities to to work in, in different contexts, in different uh, areas. You know, put that time and effort into learning French or Spanish or ch Chinese or Russian if you don't already speak them. It gives you more flexibility. It gives you more opportunity. As well as that, it is take a step back when looking at what you want to do. 
you know, for me personally, I have worked nonstop for the last six years. I've looked, one of the things that have really driven me is, is having that job security. And I think that comes from the first six months after finishing in South Sudan, I wasn't able to find a job for, for, for that length of time. So it really made me think, okay, I need to build my experience. I need to get this experience. I need to build my CV. I need to, I need to do all the, I need to, to, to go through the motions, but you also need to take time out. So it's about creating that like work-life balance. So right now I'm taking a bit of a, a bit of a break. Um, I'm going to go to South America and learn Spanish. I mean, this is something that I've wanted to do for the last 10, 15 years. And now is the time that I'm sort of saying, well, no, actually I don't need to work. I, I, I have gained a, a ton of experience. I can take six months off and I will still have um, job security when I decide to go back. Build up your CV as much as you can, but always take time out or take a step back because we have so many within the humanitarian sector, and I'm sure you've seen it yourself, we have so many uh, what we call lifers who are 50, 60 years old, have never taken a break. You know, there's a lot of them sitting at the bars with wh who are divorced at home and their job is the only thing they have. So it's about ensuring that you take time out um, for yourself as well. Um, now, that's not to say, you know, every mission you go on, you need to take a six month break. It means, you know, do it until a certain, a certain point and constantly reevaluate what you want to do. We can do this job for a very long time, but this job doesn't define us. Um, there will always be conflict. There will always be natural disasters. There will always be a need for us. So take that time to make sure that you are in a good space, in a healthy space, before you start taking on missions. Because not only do you suffer, but the mission suffers and the people you are, supposed to, you, you are serving will also suffer because you're not giving them um, 100%. And that for me is probably one of the most important things. The amount of people I've worked with who have been completely burnt out. And as a result, their projects were failing and we weren't able to provide the services to people who needed it most. I think those are some great points. And I think one of the main differences between, say, having a quote unquote normal nine to five, eight to five type of job, whatever the case is, in, in our own cities, and our own nations is, you know, you get into that routine Monday through Friday, things like that. And you, you go to the office and you go home, generally speaking, of course. But with an international career, you do need to sort of craft out and design your career and design your lifestyle of what that's going to be. Because you are changing countries, because you are living in different areas, because you're exposed to different cultures, and because you do need to incorporate time for yourself, like what you're talking about. So I think those are all really great points. And uh, really, Francis, Thanks a lot for joining us today. It's really great to, to hear your perspective on international careers. And, and thanks for taking the time to, to share your perspective and really look, uh, look forward to, to following your career in the future. If, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Thank you very much for that, Kyle. It was, uh, it was a pleasure speaking to, to you today. They're more than welcome to follow me on LinkedIn if they want to reach out with any questions. So long as uh, I'm not away from the office or not, not too busy, I'd be more than happy to help. Okay. Thanks a lot, Francis. Thanks. And have a great day. You too. Thank you very much.